This morning we continue our Advent series and in our first week we examined our need. And this week we're going to look at God's promise. Our scripture comes from Isaiah chapter 59. I'm going to read the first six verses and then from 14 to 21. Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save you, or his ear dull that it cannot hear you. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and our God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. For your hands are defiled with blood and your fingers with iniquity, your lips have spoken lies, your tongue mutters wickedness. No one calls for justice, no one goes to the law honestly. They rely on empty pleas, they speak lies. They conceive mischief and give birth to iniquity. They hatch serpents' eggs. They weave the spider's web. He who eats the eggs dies. And from that one is crushed and a viper is hatched. The spider webs will not serve as clothing. Men will not cover themselves with what they make. Their works are works of iniquity and deeds of violence are in their hands. Justice is turned back and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking, and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him, but there was no justice. He saw that there was no man, and wondered that there was no one to intercede. And then his own arm brought him salvation, and his righteousness upheld them. He put on righteousness as a breastplate, and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in zeal as a cloak. According to their deeds, so he will repay. Wrath to his adversaries, repayment to his enemies, to the coastlands he will render repayment. So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream, which the wind of the Lord drives. And a redeemer will come to Zion. To those in Jacob who turn from transgression, declares the Lord. And as for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit that is upon you, and my words that I have put in your mouth, shall not depart out of your mouth, nor out of the mouth of your offspring, or out of the mouth of your children's offspring, says the Lord, from this time and forevermore. This is the word of the Lord. If you're new to church, if you're new to the scriptures, the word Advent means arrival. And during the season of Advent, we consider how God in his great grace and love came in Jesus Christ that first Christmas day, his arrival. And then we cascade our vision forward, considering the return of Jesus Christ in his second arrival. And we live in this time in between the already and the not yet. And this scripture might have struck you as uh, a poor choice. Because it doesn't have that hallmark vibe. Um, But there's a reason why... Historically, the church has always paused to look very honestly at the darkness so that we can celebrate the light. It's not because we're uh, gluttons for punishment and we just like to just get unnecessarily broody like, you know, you know, religious Batmans in the corners sort of brooding in the dark. There's a reason for this. It's because the narrative of Scripture, the meta-narrative, is that this God of great love came into our darkness with his light. You see, you would think... That a God who is holy and perfect and wonderful and just would be repulsed by darkness. And there is a sense in which the scriptures are very clear that he is. But you would think that being repulsed by darkness would mean he would refuse to enter the darkness. That his holiness meant I have to stay away from this darkness. 
But God's holiness on display is moving into the darkness, coming towards his beloved creation, coming towards those that he loves. He's not sitting back with his arm crossed saying, ooh, gross. He's coming into the mess of humanity. And so this is why we take an honest look at this. Tish Warren is an Anglican priest. She wrote a op-ed in the New York Times back in 2021 to the effect of this God of great light coming into our darkness. And she speaks of it in this way. She says, to practice Advent is to learn, I'm sorry, is to lean into an almost cosmic ache, our deep wordless desire for things to be made right and the incompleteness that we find. In the meantime, we dwell in this world that's raked with conflict and violence and suffering and darkness. And in one way or another, we're not only wounded by the evil in the world, but we're wielders of it. Contributing in our own moments of unkindness or impatience or selfishness. Life isn't a Disney cruise. And the tyranny of relentless mandatory celebration leaves us exhausted and often ironically feeling emptier. Many of us suffer from the holiday blues, and I wonder if this phenomenon is made worse by the incessant demand for cheer, the collective lie that through enough work and enough positivity, we can perfect our lives and perfect our world. I don't want to be a Grinch, tisking anyone for decorating the tree early or firing up Jingle Bell Rock before the 25th. I'm all for happiness and joy and eggnog and corny sweaters and parties. But to rush into Christmas without first taking time to collectively acknowledge the sorrow that's in our world and in our own lives, it seems like an inebriated and overstuffed practice of denial. As we look at this text in Isaiah chapter 59, this is a prophecy that took place 700 years before Christ was born that day in Bethlehem. And this prophecy shines like a lighthouse through a hurricane because... It is this promise of God that comes to his people in a very dark and a very hopeless time. It acknowledges the pain of the present. It foreshadows the inevitable redemption that's coming in the future. And it gives them grace and strength and resilience for their very moment. And this prophecy comes after decades, literally decades, of the people of God turning from God just in an absolute self-induced free fall into darkness and sin. They are swan diving into greed and obsession with power and hedonism and idolatry. It's why the book of Amos was written where basically they became bullies. They once were the oppressed. And then when they rose and, and had uh, the rise of the Davidic kingdom and had political power, they began to adopt the ideologies of the surrounding cultures and and they became oppressors. And for decades, this is going on. And it's in, the, it's in that context of utter darkness that God makes this promise. And we're going to break the text down in two ways this morning. First, the diagnosis. And secondly, the deliverance. Because God makes a diagnosis. And the diagnosis is not good. We just read it. It's a terrible diagnosis. But then God meets the diagnosis by sheer grace with his deliverance. So first, the diagnosis. It's that we're hopeless without it. And that comes out very strongly in the poetry. In verse 1, you look at it, and it says that his hand is not shortened, that it can't save. He's not deaf. In other words, God's people are in this historical pattern. You find it over and over and over in the Old Testament. It's there very clearly. You just see it repeated. 
First they question God's wisdom, then they question God's goodness, then they begin to question God's presence. Because they turn from his ways, their life becomes a train wreck, and then they say, where are you, God? And it's this cycle that keeps on happening. So this very first verse, God is actually answering an accusation, right? My hand isn't short that I can't save you. I'm not deaf. It's not that I'm not hearing your prayers. It's not, I didn't do this. You did this. He's asked, this, this accusation has been throughout the scriptures and even still today. Does God see what's going on in my life? Does God care what's going on in my life? Does God see what's going on in the world? Does God care what's going on in the world? We've always done this. This is the classic human trope. And the sobering reality of this text is God is saying, I didn't do this. You have done this. It's not that I do a terrible job at being God. It's that you've chosen to be God and behold your heaven. You do a terrible job being God. It's sobering, this, this diagnosis of hopelessness. And the reason why it's so important that we realize that God's actually answering an accusation is because we understand that God is sovereign. But we mistake what his sovereignty means when we interpret sovereignty to mean determinism. That there's nothing that we can do about it, that everything that happens was God's will, because he's sovereign. There's a sense in which, of course, that's true, because God can't be surprised by anything. But it's not, you can't just fall down the stairs because you didn't tie your shoes and then get up and say it was the Lord's will. (laughs) Or we could tie our shoes. And yet that didn't surprise God, that not tying my shoes, I would fall down the stairs. God's sovereignty shouldn't be taken to mean that he's some sort of cackling Geppetto and he's just puppet mastering everything that's happening on earth and he's pulling all the strings. That's not what happened at all. He says, your iniquity has done this. It's so green. You know, we, um, the accusations, I've, I've done them myself. Many of you are in this room and you're like, you've done it too. Where are you, God? Why are you doing? Why are you allowing this? What's happening? The world is broken. That's what's happening. Uh, you know, most of us in here, I think there's one, 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 one of the members here at Redeemer is a professional auto technician that I'm aware of. Maybe there's more, but I think there's only one. But the rest of us aren't. And if we went into our garages and said, you know, we're going to change the uh, air filter on our car, so we pop the hood and we Google what's an air filter look like, and then we find it, and then we take the bolts off, and we start removing it, and then one of the bolts falls down into the throttle body, and it rattles around and goes in. And we say, oh, well, and we just put the rest of it together, and then we fire up the car, and we drive away with that bolt that went down into the throttle body, and then the engine seizes and blows up, and we say, why, why, God, why are these things happening? Humanity, from the jump, from Genesis 3, uh, we rejected God, we've chosen instead to be God, and so our world and our bodies and our psychology and everything uh, is like there's a bolt rolling around in the machine. And this text is all about God answering this. So it's the classic human trope. And the other thing I think is important to note is if somebody lets you down for a week, a month, repeatedly, let's say there's a person in your life that you just realize they just continually keep letting you down. They're turning from you. Maybe it's a friend, a family member. How long are you going to continue to move towards that person emotionally? And like, how long? What if they did it for five years? What if they did it for 10? What if they did it for 50? 
The people of God keep turning from God decade after decade, century after century, millennia after millennia, and he keeps moving towards them. There's a deliverance coming, but before we get to the deliverance, we just got to sit in the gravity of the diagnosis. I didn't do this, you did this. Behold your heaven as you be God. We don't run to people that we don't trust. <laughs> Relationships do dissolve when trust dissolves. But God does run towards his people after they've lost trust. It's amazing grace. The situation's just totally hopeless. This is all leading, of course, into the slavery in Babylon. 581 BC, Babylon will come in and will destroy uh, the temple and will destroy everything. And the reason why this is so dark is because I've mentioned this before, but if you pin it to world history, it's like when Babylon comes in in 581 and, and destroys Jerusalem and destroys the temple, the walls around Jerusalem in the ancient context, like having a wall, meant your city was safe. So when the walls are destroyed, that undoes the work of Nehemiah. When the temple is destroyed, that undoes the work of Solomon. The temple is destroyed and therefore there's no... There's no longer Davidic kingdom. There's no king. So then the work of David is destroyed. And if the king is gone, that also means the laws and the ways of God, of God are also gone. So that undoes the work of Moses. And then they've, they've been decimated, brought into slavery, where the goal would be that over, you know, uh, 5, 10, 15, 20 years, you can do away with, you can have them absorb into your culture, your God, your way of life, and essentially eliminate this people group. And that, 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 undoes the work of Abraham. It's like at this point in their history, it's like everything is at ground zero. And look at the, look at the uh, imagery that's given in verse 5 of the soul that rejects its maker. The snake, you know, you're, you eat snake eggs and then you die and then snakes come out of your dead corpse. Wow. And then verse 6, you try and clothe yourself with your works, but your clothes are like cobwebs. Who wears cobwebs? The skeleton. What is this Old Testament jack? Skeleton, uh, skeleton situation. What is this Burton-like inspired poetry trying to teach us? Um, there's something in the soul that goes awry deeply when we reject our maker. When we look for centering our lives around something else infinitely smaller than God to give us the peace that only God can give us. In verse 14... The text goes on to say there's no justice, there's no righteousness, truth is stumbling in the public square. Nobody goes to the law honestly. And you'd think that God's like, you know, taking shots across the bow of Babylon. No, there's no truth in their public square. They're not going to the law honestly. It is true of Babylon, but it's also been, it's also been true, you see that in verses 3 and 4, of the people of God. They've just absorbed the ways of the culture, the worship of the culture. Whatever the culture made ultimate, they've made ultimate. And so then there's, they're in this you know, vacuum of formation. And so therefore there's no formation for their children. And I spoke to that earlier in the liturgy about how we desire to do that very intentionally with our kids today. There's just no formation going on. So because this is happening, the children grow up to embrace the things that are considered ultimate by the culture and they get to this very dark place. The worship of God is, is all but gone. And I consider what it's like to the challenges of parenting today. Susan and I have had to do it. Many of you are in the middle of it as well. And 
there can be a temptation in an, in an autonomy-obsessed culture to be like, well, we don't want to force the kids to do anything. I mean, I, don't, I mean, sure, the, sure, the, sure, the children of Israel didn't worship the God of their fathers and their mothers and their grandfathers and their grandmothers. I mean, sure, they left, but you don't want to force your kids to do anything. You don't want to force them to go to church. You don't want to force them. It's an interesting word, force. I wonder if there were other adjectives that could be used to describe the formation of a child other than force. You don't want to force your child to drink water. I mean, you don't want to force them to go to school. But if they just decide, maybe we should just raise our kids like free-range chickens. Just follow them around. If they decide they want to do this thing for four hours, I guess as a parent that means I'm doing it too. Because you don't want to force anything. It's absurd. What if it was loving your children? What if it was forging and forming character in your children? Resilience in your children? What if it was saying no to your children without apology, like you were going to destroy their little egos? I just have, for those of you who have young children who are deathly afraid of messing it up, can I just put, can I just put your minds at ease? You're going to mess it up. Okay? Relax. You're going to make mistakes. Your kids are going to say, just talk to my kids. They're going to be like, how do you want this chronological? Do you want it alphabetical? I'll tell you the ways my dad. This is what you know right now. So it's not about forcing. I don't force the child to worship God. Well, you don't want to force them. Would you want to form them? What if it was forming? What if it was loving? Anyone who's ever flourished at anything had a voice in their life that was like, we're going to do this. This is going to be good for you. This is going to be great for you. Trust me, drink water, eat vegetables. Trust me, play the scales one more time. Trust me. Like the sheer joy of being able to command an instrument is going to be amazing. Trust me, do the math homework one more time. Trust me, just trust me. It's going to be, you're going to flourish later. I know right now this seems painful, but the flourishing is coming. And so the, the whole generation has gone wayward. After year after year after year of just being in a vacuum of formation. And so God uses these really hard times as uncomfortable tools to draw his kids back to the grace and the rest that is found in him. It seems incredibly hard, incredibly strong, but what is God doing here? God is, God is using these hard times. He's using the political powers that are coming in and, and, and crushing his children. We're like, is he this you know, angry, devious parent? Absolutely not. He's trying to pry their hands open so that they would let go of their little insufficient gods that they've been clinging to. And remember verse 1, God didn't cause any, God didn't arbitrarily cause political, you know, overtaking hostility. He's not arbitrarily causing anything. Their iniquity caused it. He established that in verse 1. He's, re, he's using it. This is how loving our Heavenly Father is. All of the travis, travesty and tragedy and suffering in the world, which is nothing like the character of God, he uses and turns it on his ear to bring forth redemption and salvation in ways that we never could. It's what he's always done. But their fists are clenched. Have you ever seen a little child who gets a sliver and then they clench their fist around the sliver and they're like, ah, the pain, ah. I remember when Nigel got a sliver one time and I went to take the sliver out of his hand. What a mistake that was. 
not taking the sliver out of his hand, but not calling my neighbors first and saying, please don't call the police. Uh, I just need you to know that the sounds you're about to hear coming from my home are not because I'm beating my child. I just need you to know I love my child and he's gripped his little hand around something and I gotta get it out. So please do not call the police because there's gonna be a lot of screaming in a minute. That's the mistake that I made. And God uses these hard and uncomfortable things through Israel's history and through our life, the people of God throughout every culture, throughout all time, God has used it to pry our hands open so that he can bring salvation. And I'm, I'm taking my time through all this because we don't simply read God's word. God's word reads us. It is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword dividing between the soul and the spirit, the bones and the marrow, right? The Hebrew writer says. So we read God's word. It reads us. These are good diagnostic questions for us. Where do I turn when I feel hopeless? Where do I go to lift my spirits? I mean, where's the first thing that I turn to? That's my king. Redeemer, we love Jesus. Do we, do we deny Jesus? Likely not. Do we dethrone Jesus all the time? So may we recalibrate and turn to trust and put our hope in him. So let's move from the diagnosis to the deliverance. By his grace, we're delivered from the hopelessness of our small little God. And we find lasting hope in him. And hope in God will renew us. And hope in anything smaller than God is most certainly going to exhaust us. We're hardwired for hope. We're, we are dependent creatures. The human experience is moving from one hope to the next. It's, we just always have an object and an expectation. And just our whole life is moving from one expectation and hope to the next. We reflect back on our lives and all of the happiest, most joy-filled moments in our lives is when hope was realized. And all of the devastating moments in our lives is when hopes were, were dashed. And so we need to put our hope in something that is strong enough to be able to address the darkest, most devastating dilemmas that life can throw at us. And that is our saving God. That is Jesus Christ and Him alone, the one whose resurrection means He's defeated death itself. Anything smaller than that will crush us by chronic disappointment. We'll crush people with ridiculous expectations. And it seems like at Christmas time, of course, we can't go five feet without bumping into a sign that says hope on it. It can feel like a trivial cliche. I'm going to preach a sermon about hope. Oh, wonderful. I've seen it a million times this week. Hope is everywhere. Is it though? Because if the only way that we can experience hope is by bracketing out pain, bracketing it out wreckage, <laughs> make sure that we only, you know, decide I'm going to have a, a day of, you know, wonderful joy, so bracket out the hope and the wreckage, uh, the hopelessness and the wreckage. Uh, it just feels like it's going to drain our cheer. So we have to constantly bracket out things that'll drain the cheer like a toddler flushing your keys in the, down the toilet. Like, i got to stay away from all that stuff. I've got to be a person of hope. Last week we talked about this a little bit. That's a very fragile hope. Right? If I've got to just continually sort of spike the eggnog to get through the Advent season, something went wrong. Um, but really, the hope that is offered in Christ, the hope that is offered in God, the hope that is offered as we consider 
Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, his return, is that I can stare the wreckage right in the eye and say Christ is king. In verse 16, the text that we read says, God makes a promise of deliverance. Notice that people have fully rejected him. They haven't done anything to warrant his involvement. They haven't done anything to warrant him interrupting in divine grace. They haven't done anything to deserve any of this. But God looks to and fro, makes this terrible diagnosis that we just examined. And then in verse 16, he says, And he, God saw that there was no one to intercede. So his own arm brought salvation. This is a Hebrew idiom, your own arm bringing salvation. It's, it's uh, redemption. It's to redeem. This is one of the names of Christ. Totally undeserved. Completely undeserved. And what I want you to notice is that they didn't meet God halfway. They did, they did nothing. They didn't meet God halfway and he said, okay, I'll come redeem you then. We don't meet God halfway. We can't meet God halfway. The Christian faith is that Christ came all the way. This is the celebration of Christmas. Totally undeserved. As many uh, handful of theologians have said in the past, that the symbol of our faith is a cross and not a ladder. We don't meet God halfway. There's a movie on Netflix right now. It's an animated Christmas movie called Claws. And if you haven't seen it, I highly recommend it. It's all about the origins of the naughty and nice list. So it's canon. Uh, no. Uh, but it's, it's, it's really interesting. And what I love about it is it highlights uh, Christian karma. Uh, Christmas karma, I'm sorry. And many of us have Christian karma. We think God operates like the naughty and the nice list. But we, this text reveals this is exactly not how God operates. Because everybody was on the naughty list and God says, I'm coming to deliver you. It's not the narrative of the scriptures at all. From the jump, Genesis 3, we're all born uh, into a condition of not wanting God. We're born onto the not interested list. God, God, so if you're visiting uh, Redeemer this morning, if you're exploring Christian faith, you don't, you're like, I'm curious about it. If you hear anything this morning, hear this. It's that God is not looking down and saying, there's a naughty list and a nice list. And the people on the nice list receive my grace and the people on the naughty list don't. Christianity is that there is no nice list and God has come for all of us on the not interested in God list. We're all on the naughty list. And I'm not talking about the things you're doing. Don't get into a moral game. Yeah, but I know a person who's a Christian and they're a jerk and, I, and I'm more generous to charities than they are. Well, I believe you. Uh, that's sad, uh, but also true, but also not what Christianity is about. It's not a moral game. It's trusting in the one who will come to redeem all things. It's, and, and that, of course, changes our lives and changes our morality. And, our, and there's a desire for holiness and the obedience of Christ. I'm not uh, chagrining any of those things. But we need to understand that there is just a grace here that just needs to be basked in. Absolutely basked in. That the, 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 the core of Christianity, the core of Christmas, the, the, the wonder of Christmas is that, is that there was a first Christmas. Because it wasn't deserved. Remember their state. There is no justice. There is no righteousness. Truth is stumbling in the public square. God is not like an elf on the shelf. It just relates to humanity in that way. He moves towards us. And then look at verse 17. There's this imagery of how God's going to come. And it's 
at an initial reading, very intimidating. Because it is God dressing for war. It's war language. Putting on a helmet of salvation. Putting on a breastplate of righteousness. Wrapping himself in zeal. Vengeance on enemies. This is an image of a king preparing to go to war to liberate his people. Every ancient reader would have read it that way. Here comes the king. Here comes the war. Here comes the deliverance. And then what they would have envisioned would have been, well, how have all of the kingdoms of the world ever been established? Bloodshed. Right? This is how it's always been. After Babylon, it's going to be Persia. And after Persia, it's going to be Rome. And it's the same old thing. And it is today still in 2023. The same old stuff rises to the top of expanding kingdoms, right? Greed, politics, power, oppression, bloodshed. But then, of course, our God comes to wage war in a way that nobody would expect. Because how does our God come in Jesus Christ? God's not at war with his wayward creation. He's at war with the darkness that is continually separating him from his beloved creation. The blood that God intends to shed is his own. And in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they all record the temptations of Christ, and they all have the same thing at the core. Here's the temptation to Jesus. Use your power like power has always been used. Use your power for your benefit. And throughout all the temptations of Christ, no. I will not use my power for my benefit. Love is using your power for others' benefit at your expense. This is the agape love of God. This is what Christ has done. And so his kingdom comes in a way that no other kingdom had ever come. Because Jesus Christ, of course, we don't celebrate Christmas that it was there was a big superhero landing and, and lightning. It was the God of thunder ground pounded you know, the, the earth and rose in splendor. He doesn't come the way every other kingdom has come. He comes in vulnerability. He comes into the mess of a manger. Verse 20, and a, and a redeemer will come. And he did. And this means, of course, that heaven is not some cosmic consolation prize for muddling through humanity. Heaven is the restoration of our humanity. It is God come to earth. It is Christ with us. It is the God who comes to dwell with us. It is the city, the life, the bodies that evade us that we wish that we had. It is the end of the paradox of beauty and brokenness. It is the wiping away of every tear. So my friends, turn to him. If you have children, teach your children to turn to him. Turn and find rest. Rest in the goodness of God. Rest in his hope. Rest in the hope that he gives that even the most terrible horrors this life can send our way only drive us more deeply into our source of hope. Christ our Redeemer. And a Redeemer will come, declares the Lord. And my spirit that is upon you, my words that I put in my mouth, will not depart from you or out of the mouth of your children or your offspring from this time forth and forevermore. Amen. Let's pray.